Good morning. When I finally figured out what to do with the clock this morning, I was reminded of Bernie Foster. Do you remember him? Some of you do. Bernie Foster would gather a, uh, a box or two of donuts and bring them to church on a morning like today when people were going to wrestle with <laughs> the change of the timing of, of the clocks. And I thought that was such an interesting thing that he did for other people to help them relax and recognize that they got here. I just wanted to mention that because it's kind of an anniversary. But I will be reading from John, First John 4, 7 through 5, chapter 5 and verse 5. Will you stand with me, please? Beloved, let us one love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide in God. So we have known and believe that love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness, on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whatever fears has not reached, excuse me, whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We loved, we love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God And everyone who loves the parent loves the child 
By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For the love of God is this, that we obey his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. Who is it that conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The word of the Lord. Thank you. Amen, amen. Ooh, that's a passage. My, I've got some homework for you this week. You can write it on the little paper that comes in your bulletin before you check out those other announcements you may have missed. Read this passage three or four times this week. But if you don't have devotional material, let it be your devotional material for you this week. Can you do that? Okay. I'm going to take that as a yes. I did forget also... Happy is the accident that happened when, when things come together so well uh, between those who are able to attend Dean's Sunday school class. The content there just lends perfectly to what we're talking about today in the service. Now, those who chose the songs, I did lay it out two months ago, so they did know. But those hymns earlier, I'm a weird guy. The older, the better. So you get to three, four hundred years old, some good stuff. I get excited. You can ask my wife. I'm nerdy about that. Um, so some really good cohesive message today that I think we need to hear. Before that, I did forget in the announcement time when I mentioned Advent that uh, we're going to be using uh, a resource that's being put out by the Foundry, our denominational publishing, used to be NPH Publishing, uh, Nazarene Publishing House, uh, for the season of Advent. We've got these little devotional books. They're out on the little table just as you go out to the left. We don't have a money basket or anything right now. I'll be out there. Um, and we'll try to get one out for the future. But these are $6. Advent starts on November 27th, so in about three Sundays. Uh, the idea would be that we, we have enough that I think everybody can take one. If you're a couple and you want to take one, that's great too. Uh, if you can pay $6, that's wonderful. That helps us recoup the cost of the book. If you can pay $12 and cover somebody else's, that's even better. Um, but if you can't pay anything and you want the book, please take the book. It will work itself out. It always does in my experience. So uh, these are daily devotions that start on, I believe, the 27th, if not the day after. Uh, they'll go through the week. So if you don't have something or you want something new during the season of Advent, you can use this. It's written by uh, Samantha Chambo. So one of our uh, wonderful general superintendents, Philomeo Chambo from Cape Verde in Africa. His wife has written it. Um, she is a pastor as well. Um, good speaker. I look forward to working through this. So um, this is not something that I'm going to be like the themes I'll be preaching on through through the season of Advent. Um, but I won't be repeating this. This is for you to work on through the weeks. OK, so um, every day through, through the season of Advent, this will be a resource for you. And it's six dollars. So, again, take one. If you want to take one today and bring six dollars next week, that's fine. It will all work out. I feel comfortable in that. If you don't feel comfortable in that, then pay twelve. And then somebody who you're worried about, it'll work itself out. Okay? Deal? All right. Please, please do that. Okay. <clears throat> so this week, uh, we come to the central, the central passage in, I believe, anyways, in these Johannine epistles, which is fancy for the letters from John. Right. Um, we've seen up to this point uh, some basic themes, some building blocks. God is light and in him there is no darkness. Um, he says repeatedly, don't be deceived. Uh, 
Don't retreat into the darkness. Uh, what he's getting at, there's no prerequisites for faith. You don't have to do anything before you come to faith. You don't need to be a Jew first. You don't need to be perfect first. You don't even have to be a good person first. I mean, ideally, we should have people coming in the doors who are bad people. Because that's kind of the point of the gospel. I remember a lady I worked with a long time ago. Uh, she was a special needs lady. Worked at Red Lobster in college. And she would roll silverware all night long. And, and I'd always tell her, you should come to church. She'd, she, I can't come into church because I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner and I'm bad. And I've got to fix this and I've got to fix that. And I was like, well, you're never going to go to church then. That's the whole point. You should just come in. So John says this. Because there were different messages about like prerequisites you had to take care of before you came to faith. No, there's no prerequisites. If you are Jewish, great. You can still... Jesus is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of that. If you're a Gentile or something, great. You can still worship Jesus. No prerequisites. And then he says, and with this, there are some false messengers. He calls them antichrists. They've gone out from him or them, whatever. Uh, they preach a similar message, but remember, their message is different because they declare that Jesus is a great human prophet, but he's not divine. He's not the Son of God. He's not, um, not the Christ. And so he says, test the spirits. Pay attention to the message that you're being given because there's a lot of similarities. The language is really close. But there'll be some subtle differences that are, you know, they, they make or break this whole thing. And now he comes to this, the central note that God is love, he says. God is love. Say that with me. God is love. Now, Paul does the same exact thing, just with more words and a more complicated argument. If you read his letters, he comes to the exact same conclusion. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 in particular is a famous chapter where he does this. Uh, to say God is love is, I'm convinced, it's about the best metaphor, the best way to talk about who God is uh, for us, in the world, whatever. God is love. But there's something interesting about this. Maybe if you're, um, I don't know, you use metaphors. We all use metaphors. Metaphors are wonderful things, but they're also problematic at times. So let me explain, because this is really important. So what a metaphor does is you explain one thing by using another thing to help you get it. So somebody says something like, uh, I, I saw this on a cooking show. I think they were crazy, but, oh, crickets. Those are popular now. They're so good. They're the food of the future. Well, they really just taste like chicken. It's a metaphor. So, how many have eaten a cricket in here? On purpose? Few? I ate one on accident when I like, flew in my mouth. and um, I don't remember it tasting like chicken. But, but, so if you don't know what a cricket tastes like, you know, it's earthy. It has undertones of, of crunch. And, what, what, and that doesn't make any sense. So somebody said, oh, it tastes like bacon or it tastes like chicken. Okay? Um, so that helps you understand, oh, well, this at least frames my experience. Right? Or um, you might say something like, it's, um, that's cold. Cold like, uh, uh, like, like ice cream or something. Right? You know what ice cream tastes like. You know the coldness of it. So it helps you kind of understand how cold it is outside. Or it's cold like a freezer. I remember one time we had a Super Bowl party in Arkansas, of all places, where we used the snow drifts outside for the teens. We had all these kids come over. So that was our cooler for our sodas and things. We just put them in the snow outside, right? So we could kind of understand. So metaphorical language helps you understand something by using something else 
right? To describe. The problem is that opens up understanding, but it also limits. So let's think of this great metaphor, God is love. I always, I'll use this in any class I teach or anytime I preach on this because it's just true even though it's maybe hard for us to understand. When I say God is love, most of you hopefully think it's like a light bulb popping. That makes sense. I know what love is and God is that. But what if you're a child who, who grew up in abuse? What if you're a spouse of someone who beats you routinely? What if, what, if you, what if you're a victim of human trafficking? Right? So what if when you hear love, you think of violent abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, molestation, things like that. So when somebody says to you, God is love, that doesn't mean anything. Or it, 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 it connotes bad thoughts, twisted, abusive thoughts. You understand? Most people can hear that and they get it. But, but it's also, so metaphorical language here, especially, it illuminates. Hopefully, you know love in a way that's deep and rich and trusting and safe. So that when you hear that, you know, this is a good thing for God to be loved. But it doesn't work that way for everyone. Which is one reason why some people have to have God explained in other ways. And why sometimes people will end up kind of with some slightly different views on God. Hopefully within that creedal framework that we talked about. But maybe because they came to faith from a, of a different, disturbing background. Okay? So to say God is love is powerful and important. It's true and it's good. But also we have to re- represent, re- recognize, excuse me, that it is a metaphor. Now here, this is, what I, this is how we can unpack this. What John is saying, notice he doesn't say God is like love. He says God is love. Now, what we do typically is we think of love like this big abstract concept out there. Okay? Like it's a giant red velvety box. Love. So then what we do is we think, oh, God is that. So like we could pick up God and put God in the love box. And that helps us understand, oh, that's how God is. But you see, John's saying something different. He says there's not a bigger quality called love that you put God into. Actually, God is the biggest category out there. He's the biggest box. There's no box you can put God into. We could call that God box love. That's what he's saying. So God is bigger than everything else. Can't be put into any other box. So God's not like love. God is love. Okay, that begins to make some sense, I think. But then what, what does that mean, though? John says, I knew you were going to ask that question. Um, let me answer that question. He answers it in many, many places. Uh, but here, verses 9 and 10, he says this. If we receive human testimony, the testimony of God is greater. For this is a testimony of God that he has testified, that he testified to his son. Those who believe in the Son of God have the testimony in their hearts. Those who do not believe in Him have made Him a liar. Am I looking at the wrong place? Let's see. Oh. And not believing the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. So what is the testimony? I want to make sure I'm in the right place. What is love? What's His explanation? It's the Son. So he says, okay, if we want to understand what this means, God being love, 
Love is bigger than the things that we might use that word for sometimes. Romantic relations or friendship or whatever. How do we know? We look to, we look to the Son. Okay? So to understand love, he says we look to the Son. Now that's important because again, most of us, all of us really, we have preconceived notions of, of what love is. It's the relationship with a parent and a child, which hopefully is good. But even in the best situations, it can be complex. Or maybe it's between a spouse. Uh, a, a loving, a marital relationship. That's one of the best illustrations of love, hopefully, is of what happens between a husband and a wife. And if you think about this, again, but it's a problematic metaphor. Not everyone's married. Not everybody's had a successful, healthy marriage. I get that. This can be dangerous language. But if we think about it simply, maybe those who have been married or are married, if you think back to when that happened, or maybe you have a friend who got married, you could observe this. When, the, when they had those first feelings, they first said that word love to the other person, I mean, was it really love? Uh, was it lust? Was it a bunch of weird thoughts that we don't know what they are, that are just different and warm and fuzzy and nice? You know, when you stand at an altar and you make promises to somebody and you say, you know, I will love that person forever, how do you know what that means at all you know, before you've had to care for them when they're, you know, dying. Or when you've had to care for your children together. Or deal with the death of a child. Or, you know, all the many, many things that can happen, right, in a marriage. Love is not something that, like, you could just pick it up and you have it. It's something that develops deeply over time. But right? it just grows. It never ends. So, yes, those initial phases are love. But they're just the beginnings. And they have all these other things associated with them. And hopefully, in a healthy, trusting, you know, sacrificial type marriage, then they develop into, into a true, deep love which only grows and develops over time. So, John says, I'm going to use this metaphor. God is love. God is bigger than love. How do we understand what this means? Well, we look to the sun. As we do so, we remember love is really complex. You typically think of it romantically or maybe it's between brothers or between sisters or between friends. But he says, I've defined it in terms of Jesus. And so in particular, he says, let's look to verse, verse 12. This is the testimony... God gave us eternal life. This life is the Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you so that you will believe and you will have eternal life. That's it. I'm looking at the wrong chapter repeatedly, trying to figure out why am I reading the wrong thing here. No one has ever, uh, he says, in this is love. Excuse me. See, I got my new Bible in, and it's so big, now I can read it easily. And I'm looking at the chapters. I've had this Bible for like 30 years. I've got to get reoriented. He says, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. 
and he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We look to Jesus for the understanding of what love is. And what is love? It's sacrifice. It's Jesus. He says, there's nothing out there that's going to help you understand love except love itself. And love itself is who God is in God's very own being. It's the Son being given to us, poured out for us, even to the point of death on the cross. True love is sacrifice, he says. Love is giving up that which you have every right to have for somebody who doesn't deserve it. It's grace. It's, it's eternal gift to someone else. That God's very own nature is to eternally give to us that which we don't deserve at all so that we could be in relationship with Him. And in doing so, that restores our relationship to God, it restores our relationship to each other, to ourselves, to creation, it allows us to be people of love as well. So God is love. What is love? Well, it's the Son. Who is the Son? Sacrifice. Servitude. Giving up what He deserved. You know, He didn't sin, but He died as a sinner. Giving everything. Dying on the cross and looking out and saying, forgive them, they don't know what what they're doing. True love is sacrifice. It's not the warm fuzzies. It's not lust. It's not just like what's convenient right now. Those are elements sometimes of love. But we know this. The true love is so much deeper than that. And ultimately, true love is sacrifice. It's service. This is what John wants to say. He does all of, all of his writing is to say this. God is love. What is love? It's Jesus. And who is Jesus? How do we know what that means? What's the definition? His life? Sacrifice. For us. Not that, not that we love God, but that God loved us. As Paul says, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We don't deserve it. And yet he did. This is the heart of his message. This is the heart of the Christian message. That God is love. Now, interestingly, he then says, it's kind of a bit of an aside, but it really is related. He says, uh, now that he's defined love, he says this thing about, well, no one's ever seen God, but they see us, looking at the right chapter now. Uh, no one's ever seen God. If we love one another, though, God lives in us. And his love is perfected. Uh, in the Old Testament, you hear this phrase, no one has ever seen God and lived. There are some people who see God and they don't. I mean, there's Isaiah who sees the, tra- if you really think about it, he just sees the train of God's robe. But otherwise, you don't see God. And that's a big thing for the people of Israel. You don't see God. God's not physical. And God's holiness is too much for us to handle. And yet what John says is, you know, nobody has seen God. And yet everyone has seen God. Because we've seen Jesus. And Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in us. Remember, John's all about abiding. John loves to abide. He wants us to abide. And what does that mean? It means like hang out in God's love. Rest in it. Lean on it. Because as we abide, we're transformed into God's love. To be in the presence of God's love, it it just unavoidably transforms us into God's love. And so therefore, the people out there, the world that he's talked about, 
They get to see God through us. Now that's both amazing and brilliant and it's really like a, a gut check. It's, it's hard to think too. Wait, you, you mean that people see, that's what they see of me is what they see of God? That's brilliant and also just really, really challenging. What a blessing and what a challenge. No one has ever seen God and yet God is fully revealed in Jesus who came to us we have seen Him, or they have seen Him, and His Spirit brings his, his presence into our midst, and as we abide in His love, we get transformed, and we go out into the world as His loving vessels in the world. So the question is, well, what do they see, right? What does the world actually see when they see us? Do they see God's love? You don't have to answer. Do they see God's love? brings us to a final point that he wants to say here. And again, John's all about abiding. As we abide in God's love, we are transformed into God's love. Not just warm fuzzies, not just nice sentiment, but, but that deep sacrificial love for God, for each other. If, now, if we live that way, and, and you know this. If you live that way or somebody living this way is probably what brought you to church in the first place. When you witness other people living that way, you just can't help but sort of scratch your head and wonder, why do they do that? Why do they care for each other that way? Why do they forgive each other when they hurt each other? Why do they give their money? Why do they cook meals for the people who need it? That sort of thing. Why? And when people do that, when they care for each other, they become God's love in the world. People take notice of this and they want to know why. They ask questions. This is how the world is meant. For some reason, this is how God laid it out. This is how God wants the, the world to encounter Him. Not through like abstract metaphysical philosophy or something like that, but through the tangible love of a community. Now, I mentioned this in the prayer. That's really hard to do. We start at home with our family or our, our roommates or whatever and we, then we try to love our neighbors we do that here in a community in a church which is always both a blessing and a challenge right to be part of a church together and all of that is like the, the pregame to help us to go out and love the world who sometimes seems unlovable or is different from us or whatever this is how the world will know us and will know God John says. And then finally, so let's say we've done all these things right. And so the world encounters love through us. Not perfect love, but love that's being perfected, remember? If the world encounters this love that's being perfected from us, we now get a chance to share with them. And what is our message? This is John's final point. What's our message? Well, it better not be fear, he says. For there's no fear in love. He says instead, if our message is, is fear of hell, if that's how we get people in the door, or doom and gloom about the culture around us, then we're not telling the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're giving something else out that may seem important or whatever, but it's ultimately shallow and it certainly isn't salvific and it's not sacrificial true love. John tells us, you know, Jesus tells us repeatedly, don't fear. Don't fear the world, even though it may kill the body. Luke 
12, Matthew 10. Even though they may kill us, we don't need to be afraid because we are with Jesus who has conquered the grave. So let us not fear and therefore that better not be the message we share with the world. There's enough of that out there all over the place. Let us not fear. Even though it might seem scary, even though the storm might rage, even though there's darkness, let us not fear. Let us love one another. If what we're sharing is fear, if what I'm preaching up here is fear of the culture or doom and gloom and hellfire and brimstone and that's, that's the message, well then I'm pretty sure that the gospel of Satan is being proclaimed and not the gospel of Jesus. He loves us. He loves us to the point of death on a cross. And He loves them too. And He wants to reach them. And for some weird reason, He wants to reach them through you and through you and through me. And we're broken and we're imperfect. But He says, if you'll hang out with me, if you'll abide with me, my Spirit will transform you. And even though you don't know how, you'll begin to show love to the world. And when you show love to the world and they start to say, why do you do that? Why are you nice to those people? Why? Why? Then you can say, because God first loved me. Because I didn't deserve it. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. And he didn't ask me to do anything different. He just said, I love you to the point I'm going to die for you. And if you want to, I'll show you a better way to live. But that's up to you. It's powerful, powerful stuff. Church, let us turn aside from fear. And it's misguided gospel. And instead, let us look full in the face of our Lord. Let us look to the gospel story of God laying down all for us that we may be reconciled to God, to others, to ourselves, and to creation. Let us leave fear aside. You know, fear, it's the beginning of wisdom, right? That's good. But it's not the fullness of love. It's where we begin. It's not where we end. Fear's not a bad thing. But that's not our gospel. Let us leave fear aside and cling to the boundless love of God. And in doing so, we will be transformed once more into the love of Christ for the world. Uh, Three takeaways real quick before we move to this place where we just flat out remember the sacrifice that God has made for us and we become transformed into that sacrifice for the world. The first is that God is love and God's followers are known by their love for others or we're supposed to be. That should be both an encouragement and a, and a check. Okay? That's okay if you feel both of those. I do. We all should. We're not there yet. We're never going to fully arrive. God's okay with that. Number two. What is love? Love is voluntary self-sacrifice for those who don't deserve such generosity. We see that in verse 10 of chapter 4. Love is voluntary self-sacrifice for those who don't deserve it, but you give it to as generosity and gift. And why? Because God first did that for you. And probably others did too, hopefully. Not everybody has experienced that, but most have. Three, there is no fear in godly love. True, fulfilled, godly love is pure positivity. Nothing left to fear, just being embraced in the goodness of God in a way that transforms us in the same for others. As we turn to this table, it's as simple as that. This is what this table is. 
we come to a place where Jesus told us, to, as often as we gather together, to you know, eat this bread, drink this cup, and do so in remembrance of me, because he knew what was coming, his sacrificial love. He was willing to go to any lengths, and, and he did. And so, as, as we come together, we remember that Jesus gathered with his disciples in a small upper room. Um, they, they gathered together and they took bread and they, they, they received this cup. It's probably at the climax of a, of a love feast that they had had together. And he kind of flipped the script where he suddenly said, Hey, by the way, this is something a little extra I want to do for you. I'm going to give myself for you. And I want you to, in turn, be ready to give yourself for others. Uh, if those who are serving will come, we're adapting to people and numbers, so I believe, just so that we know here, we're going to have uh, four here in the center who will take and pass, and we'll have two on each side who will help kind of keep it going, and we have somebody taking to the Sunday school classroom as well. do is we'll receive these elements and just hold them. Not you. Somebody else has taken to Sunday school. So if we... No, no, we're good. If the four if they'll, uh, come here in the middle and then those who don't have, if you'll go to the outside and then you'll help keep them passing. If you two gentlemen would uh, just help each side pass them around. get it figured out. As you receive, just hold on to the element. We'll receive together. Church of the Nazarene, we believe that all are welcome to the table. John Wesley talked about communion being a converting ordinance, meaning that usually it's for people who believe in Jesus as their Savior, but it can actually be a place where you encounter Him in a salvific way, and you can come to faith. So what I always tell people, they ask, should I receive communion? I'm not really, I don't know what I believe or whatever. I say, sure, if you know what it means, and you're willing to receive Jesus' body and blood, and be transformed by Him, go for it. You might encounter him in it. And if you've been receiving communion for years and years and years, it's a place where we encounter him, his body, his blood, his spirit, and we become transformed and renewed in his sacrificial love. Looks like we're almost all the way around. I'm going to go receive myself here. when you're getting used to a new setting to do this. And I always like to remind myself that the messiness of sometimes of communion, we want to have it be as perfect and pass it out and make it all smooth. It should be messy. It is messy. This group needs the bread here. So if we could get the bread over to this group. Excellent. Does anyone else need a cup? Okay. 
It's a messy thing that we receive. And it's good. Jesus offered his body and his blood that we might be... I think we're good, Lily. Oh, no. Okay. That we might be redeemed. That we might be transformed in his power. need the bread. Do you need one? There you go. All right. Christ's body broken for us. His blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Let us all receive and receive his gift of salvation and of love. Take and eat. Eternal God, we give you thanks for this holy mystery in which you have given yourself for us. Sacrificial love. Grant that we would go into the world in the strength of your spirit to give ourselves for others. Sacrificial love. Amen.